This is Bezik on Stocks. I'm your host, Ian Bezik. As always, nothing here is uh, investment advice. Uh, everything is for education and entertainment purposes only. Uh, with that out of the way, uh, welcome to another episode of the show. Uh, crazy week in the market. Crazy couple of weeks, actually. Sorry, there was no show last week. I've been uh, uh, very busy with paperwork and all. Uh, bought a lot uh, to, to build a house here in Colombia, and that's uh, obviously for anyone that's uh, bought property or anything like that, there's obviously a lot of uh, hassles involved with that. So uh, not a great time to be taking that up with the market going crazy, but uh, it is what it is. Uh, market was a little better today, but obviously we're still, uh, I mean, the S&P is now down at 4,000, uh, kind of on support down here, down a long way over the past past month or two. I think the NASDAQ is well into bear market territory now. Uh, clearly the problem, like as we've been talking about on the show kind of all year, is uh, still interest rates. I know it seems very simple, simple-minded to just say interest rates are going up, so stocks have to go down, and tech stocks in particular have to go down, but uh, sometimes the simple explanation is actually the correct one, and I think in this case, people had made a lot of pricing assumptions on the idea that interest rates were going to be zero forever, um, and that essentially money had no cost. Um, like a lot of valuation is based on how much profit is worth in the future versus how much it's worth today, and so if, um, if your discount rate is zero effectively, and that uh, if you save cash, you get no return. People say, uh, well, there's no opportunity cost if I buy, I don't know, a data dog or a snowflake or something like that that has no earnings today, but potentially may have tons of earnings in the future. Uh, people are willing to pay a much higher multiple for that when there's no opportunity cost, like I said, on that capital. But now when you can get 3.5% on a government bond, and maybe... There's a lot of dividend aristocrats paying 4 or 5%. Uh, dividend yields now and so against that backdrop now people are saying oh maybe i don't want to own some company that's not going to be profitable until 2026 uh, because it costs me a lot more like i'm foregoing a six or seven percent interest rate i could be getting on something uh, and so yeah the Jews just have a much larger discount that you have to put on stocks now with rates being higher and it matters much more to companies, like I said, that the profits are in the future. Like if you're buying a telecom company, say you're buying Verizon here at nine times earnings, you're getting an 11% earnings yield and I believe a 5% dividend yield off the stock from day one. And so uh, in terms of earnings, you would get your whole investment back from Verizon in nine years. Uh, whereas on something like, like Snowflake, we have no idea when they'll earn back your capital. It could be in the 2030s. It could well be never. <laughs> It's hard to say, uh, and so, and so that's kind of the big driver moving things. Uh, obviously, everyone's watching the Fed to see how quickly they'll hike. Uh, last Wednesday, the market spiked after uh, Powell kind of took a seventy-five basis point rate hikes off the table. That appeared to be kind of a turning point. Where we would say, "Oh, the Fed's moderating a little bit. Um, we can be more more sure of our footing going forward." Uh, but obviously all of those gains were undid uh, the next day. Uh, it wasn't just in stocks, also in the bond market. Bonds had jumped on the news that the Fed was not going to hike by more than 50 basis points at a time. But then the bonds gave back their gains. Um, the market's still pricing like 10, I guess from here, like eight more rate hikes, which I don't see that as being realistic. Uh, like I said, but I'm obviously I'm losing a lot of money in my bond positions that I've talked about and disclosed here on the show previously. 
Uh, and so I've been wrong on that. And uh, we'll see if I was early or just totally wrong. Uh, but I still don't see how the Fed possibly gets to the number of hikes they're talking about. We've now hiked three times and the market's down, what, 15% on the S&P and 25, 30% on the NASDAQ and like 70% on ARC. It's like, really, if this is what we get with three rate hikes, what do we think is, is going to happen if the Fed really does eight, nine, ten hikes? I just don't see how they can possibly uh, pull it off. But I mean, that's what the market's still pricing. So I still like owning bonds because I think the Fed, short-term bonds, I should clarify. I don't have a view on, on the long-term bonds, but I don't see how the Fed will get as many hikes as they say. I think some of the Fed members are starting to to show signs of moderation, although Powell maybe isn't there yet. But uh, if we have another 50 basis point hike next month and stocks drop another 10%, I think you're going to see the Fed cry uncle pretty soon after that. So uh, in terms of a tradable bottom, I, would, I think there's a chance that we get a pretty serious rally over the summer. That would be kind of when I'd be looking for a bigger move. And obviously we're way oversold kind of on ARC and tech stocks now. So it wouldn't be a surprise at all if a lot of stuff that's really beaten up goes, let's call it, goes up 20 or 30%. Uh, but in the context of a bigger bear market, like if you look back at 2000, there were, I don't know, at least a dozen 20% rallies in the NASDAQ, and yet it kept going lower. So I'd say that we're overdue for a rally, but kind of a bigger rally I'd be looking for this summer. Because I think you'll see the Fed start saying, oh, maybe we only need to do 25 basis point hikes instead of 50. Uh, kind of inflation, I think you're going to see inflation start to moderate a little bit. A lot of the stuff that was up the most in 2021, you're going to see much better year over year. Comparables this year, things like used car prices are starting to come under control. That was a huge factor in inflation uh, previously. So I think I think we're going to start seeing some moderation. Uh, I mean, obviously inflation isn't going to go away overnight, but we could be looking at, I don't know, 5% and trending in the correct direction. Uh, by the end of the year, early 2023. And I think the Fed is going to have a really hard time saying we need to keep hiking rates and sending the stock market further into a bear market uh, as inflation starts to moderate. Uh, kind of, so that's kind of the overview of where we are in terms of the, the market, uh, what to do with this information. I think it's interesting in terms of earnings. I mean, obviously, interest rates have been the primary factor and uh, that have been driving down the market, but we've seen, we've seen some earnings blow up uh, the season as well and I think people have been wondering when are these companies going to slow down after the pandemic and we're finally seeing it now obviously in tech a lot of the tech names are, are decelerating like your Netflixes or your Amazons uh, but we're seeing it in, outside of tech as well where companies are uh, struggling to keep up with inflation I think outside of like consumer staples have done very well in terms of handling inflation but a lot of other industries we're seeing them uh, not be able to get all their pricing through um, yeah, so you have kind of a lower earnings growth trajectory, or perhaps earnings will go down outright. Um, and obviously, that's a, a negative factor for the market as well. Uh, in terms of in tech in particular, uh, it's it's informative to see how tech kind of dropped between 2000 and 2003. First, you had your dot coms, kind of your pets dot com, and your uh, kind of all of those companies like the. The grocery dealer, like Webvan, all of those companies kind of peaked in March of 2000. And by the end of 2000, they were down 80, 90, or in some cases, 100%. Um, but the big, the quality tech companies like your Cisco's and Lucent's and Microsoft's, uh, those didn't roll over until uh, the beginning of 2021. So kind of uh, almost a year after the speculative tech stocks started going down. So I'd argue today, uh, kind of the market, 
for speculate like your specs and your Kathy stacks and um, kind of all of that stuff peaked in February of 2021 last year, and now um, kind of a year later you see the it spread from just as in 2000 the poor quality companies went went over the edge and then 2001 the bigger ones did. I think you're seeing that now with Amazon and Netflix and. Uh, those sorts of companies, uh, NVIDIA, starting to roll over significantly, both in terms of price action and also their, their earnings coming in softer than people had been expecting. Uh, and then that starts to have more impacts up the food chain because companies like Netflix say, we're not going to produce as many movies as before. And so then they, when they hire uh, fewer people to make movies, then you have fewer people using Adobe uh, seats and Adobe to, to do the... Uh, the animations and whatnot, and uh, yeah, when tech companies start stop hiring, then all these other SaaS companies that are business to business, so they get their income from selling to other uh, tech companies. They're going to see their earnings grow uh, slow, excuse me. And so I think we're kind of at a tipping point where you're going to see a, a recession within the tech industry um, as you see more hiring freezes, and in some cases, people are getting laid off altogether, and that. Just the, these SaaS businesses, their volume is how many seats do you have, how many members do you have. And so uh, when people like Facebook and Netflix hire fewer people, then that's going to hit everybody's downline. And so obviously tech's what's on everyone's radar. That's what everyone wants to buy because they're the biggest uh, dips and corrections. And I'm not totally against the idea, but realize you're running into a pretty big headwind if you try to buy tech because tech has been the top performing sector since 2009. Prior to this year, the... The QQQ, the NASDAQ, hadn't been down since 2008. It was up every calendar year from 2009 to 2021. It was like the only correct trade. If you're an aggressive hedge fund, you had to own tech or you were underperforming. There was just no other option. And so all of these people have uh, these large tech positions and they can't all get out at the same time. Uh, and so when we're buying the dip on, on something like an Amazon or a Google or something, we're we're stepping in and buying, uh, providing liquidity for funds that are underperforming and needing to exit their positions. Um, and so that's just kind of something to keep in mind if you're buying these positions, you'll probably need to dollar cost average because these have been everyone's top holdings in terms of fast money and, and smart funds for a decade plus. And they can't just sell all of their Amazon or Google or something overnight, it takes a while for the trends to change. And so we're in a distributive period for the tech stocks where the big funds are moving out. Uh, yeah, and so just keep that in mind if you're buying the dip on these names. Uh, I'd say we're past fair value. Uh, something like Google is cheap now. I mean, even Amazon, I've, I've bashed Amazon for years. Uh, but my fair value is 23.50, so it's below that now. So I think I think you could make a reasonable argument that, that Amazon in a vacuum would be worth buying. However, you're going to have these issues I talked about, both in terms of the momentum's going the wrong way. Funds are distributing these positions. And then also, you're going to have slower earnings, uh, both from the tech industry kind of spending less. Uh, something like AWS is kind of everyone's biggest expense for all these other tech companies, like the, your servers. Are your, <laughs> that's, uh, you can't run your business without your servers. And so uh, as fewer new companies get funded, people expand less than they would have in the past. And things like your cloud growth rates will come down. I'm not saying that cloud will stop growing, but if it decelerates from 40% to 20%, uh, that's going to hit some people's multiples. And so 
I think like, yeah, in a vacuum, something like even Amazon is undervalued now and something like Google is significantly undervalued. Meta is significantly undervalued. Um, but that doesn't mean the stock has to go up tomorrow. Oftentimes stocks go from significantly overvalued to significantly undervalued. There's a pendulum and there's no one that comes out and says, oh, the stock is, is correctly priced now. So we're going to step in and defend the line. Like, oh, Google's at 2,500. That's the correct price for this equity. So we're going to buy it. You don't see that. That's not how markets work. The price often overshoots dramatically and that's where the, the fortunes are made. So I think buying tech, like if you're willing to wait three to five years on some of these big names, I particularly like like Adobe, Autodesk, Salesforce. I think these will all be higher uh, if you're willing to wait a while. Um, but for people that are just trying to play a quick dip, I would focus elsewhere. Uh, yeah, so that's that's my view on tech. And then, so, so where am I more interested if I'm not primarily buying tech? Um, I think a lot of the compounder or compounder adjacent names, just meaning kind of companies that grow earnings uh, quickly and with uh, good uh, kind of steadiness. Uh, a lot of those names are owned by the same hedge funds that uh, own the SaaS names in huge size. Look at something like um, the fund of the UK Fundsmith, where the, I think the like their top ten positions, like it's like four of the five Fang stocks plus like Intuit and PayPal, uh, and all these other companies that have grown uh, Domino's. Uh, but yeah, so a name like Domino's Pizza, for example, is getting sold off hard because Fundsmith and other funds like it uh, will own a company like Domino's among all their software companies. Uh, and so when they get outflows, when people are pulling funds out of it, they have to reduce all their positions, which is primarily the tech stocks, but then they're selling off their Thermo Fisher, they're selling off their Waters, they're selling off their Domino's Pizza, they're selling off their Estee Lauder, all of those um, other high-quality compounder companies that they own in addition to the software and so that's one place I'm finding a lot of opportunities are kind of in these classic compounder names that have fallen a lot recently, something like an MSCI, I think is down, what, 35%. That's one of the best businesses in the world, like selling indexes to people. Uh, it's virtually impossible to compete with them. And uh, I mean, just as long as passive investing keeps growing, you'll have more and more people using indexes. So that sort of business that doesn't go anywhere. Uh, and traditionally it's grown at a double digit rate and yet the stock's just gotten whacked. Um, something like Echolab, which I've written about a lot, I think is down from 250 to 160. I haven't checked today, but uh, down dramatically. It's kind of almost a monopoly on cleaning services around the world. It's actually an economic reopening play to an extent, and yet it's just been thrown in the in the high multiple bucket that's getting sold off, I think it was at 40 times earnings, and now it's dropped into the 20s, uh, something like Brown Foreman, uh, Jack Daniels Whiskey, and Tequila. Uh, traditionally, sells around 40 times earnings, uh, but the stock has moved to 52-week uh, lows now, even though almost all the other consumer staples are at 52-week highs, any of them. Stocks like Hershey and Coke and uh, and Pepsi seemingly go up every day, and yet Brown Foreman's at 52-week lows. And the only way that really makes sense is that the ownership base is different. Like Coke is primarily an income stock. Uh, it's kind of a lot of retirees and older folks own it. But Brown Foreman was owned by these hedge funds that own compounders because Brown Foreman is the best company in its industry in terms of profit margins, EBITDA margins, so on. And so Brown Foreman has a different shareholder base than, than its peers in Staples. Like the people that own Brown Foreman primarily don't own Coke and don't own Hershey. Or, uh, so that sort of thing. So these ones that were owned by 
by the more institutional share class um, or institutional ownership base, excuse me. Something like uh, Brown Foreman has gotten very interesting in my view. Uh, a lot of the dividend aristocrats are selling off, which uh, there is some debate over whether buying for dividends or buying for total returns is a more sound policy, which is kind of outside of the scope of the episode tonight. But I would just say that I, I value dividend aristocrats, even though technically it makes little difference to you uh, whether a company returns cash to you via dividends or um, via share buybacks. Like in theory, that really doesn't make much difference. Uh, but in practice, a company that raises its dividend every year, uh, that policy tends to force management to behave responsibly in terms of not taking on too much debt, uh, not making crazy acquisitions, uh, kind of having having a policy of raising your dividend every year uh, forces kind of a, a more conservative uh, view of running the business than if you're just buying back stock and you buy back a ton of stock when you have more cash on hand and you stop buying back stock when you don't make money. Like that sort of, uh, that sort of kind of, more volatile approach to capital returns tends to fare worse for investors than a company that just says we have a duty to our shareholders to hike our dividend every year. Um, so that being the case, I think uh, some of the industrial names are getting interesting, like Stanley Black & Decker, for example. Uh, I was shocked when I was looking at it last month. It's now down 45% over the last year. Uh, for people that don't know, it's a company that makes power tools primarily. Uh, and it's down, get this, it's down 13% over the past five years. Uh, it's down significantly from where it was in January of 2020. And so the market has concluded that this company is worth less than it was uh, prior to COVID. Obviously, they got a sales boost from COVID because everyone was at home in their garage like doing uh, home repairs or construction or whatnot because uh, they didn't have anything else to do. Uh, so... Yeah, they pulled forward some sales. Uh, 2022 will be sluggish compared to 2021. Uh, but even that being the case, like if the stock was worth 165 before anyone knew what COVID was, how is it worth 120 today? That to me makes zero sense. Stock's trading at 12 times uh, this year's estimated earnings, 10 times next year's estimated earnings. Analysts see double-digit earnings growth through at least 2024. And so, yeah, you might have a two-quarter... Uh, slump compared to 2021 in terms of slower sales as uh, the pandemic buying ends. But it's a high-quality business, 2.5% dividend yield that, like I said, has been increased more than 25 years in a row. Uh, I don't know why people are doing I don't know why the stock is done so dramatically. Yeah, during during the pandemic, it hit 220, and now it's at 120. So that's a full 100 points off a pretty boring, stable uh, industrial business. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's just dramatic overreaction. There's other industrials uh, that I guess they're not at 52-week lows, but names like Honeywell and 3M, and a lot of those have come down a lot. I think there's some interesting buys there. Um, those are tied to the economy, obviously. So if we go straight into a recession, uh, those those may underperform, at least underperform my expectations for them. But like I said, I think the Fed is going to have to back down fairly quickly. Uh, if I had to guess, maybe we get a two or three quarter recession. Uh, like in 2001, there was a two quarter recession, just six months. Uh, it was the briefest recession in U.S. history. Basically started with 9-11 and ended in early 2002. I wouldn't be surprised if we get a, a brief technical recession like that, if the Fed kind of is acting too aggressively right now. And we're up against very strong numbers from 2021. 
but longer term, uh, consumer balance sheets are as strong as they've been in decades. Uh, wages, real wages have gone up. Uh, demographic trends are positive. You've got things such as millennials finally buying houses uh, that should support a lot of the economy over the next, call it five to 10 years. Um, so I think the rest of 2022 and maybe 2023 is going to be bumpy in terms of the economy and uh, what we're looking at on a quarter-to-quarter -quarter basis. But longer term, I'm, I think the things can pick back up, certainly by 2024. And so uh, I'm interested in taking positions in these companies like Stanley Black & Decker that have fallen dramatically uh, below their pre-COVID levels, uh, trading at very attractive valuations, like uh, 12 times earnings, I mean. You would think that this was uh, some very low quality company. It feels like forever since we've been able to buy high quality companies under 15 times earnings, unless they're special situation, something like a bank that always trades at a, a low P ratio. But yeah, so I, dividend aristocrats, just to get back to my point, I think there's a lot of them that are interesting right now that have fallen dramatically. And those are going to be a lot safer, uh, most of them, than trying to buy the most beaten up tech names. Um, so. Yeah, that's kind of my overview. And then I can open the lineup for questions or I can go through more individual stocks uh, depending on what you all want to do. But let's see if anyone has any questions. Don't be shy. All right, we've got one. Harry, you are up. Harry, you might need to tap a button. Uh, uh, there we go. Sorry about that. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I also am kind of looking at some of these more compoundary type names, but a lot of them, the valuations kind of exploded, like, long before COVID, like, 2017, 2018. They kind of moved significantly above their historic sort of valuation range. Like, I'm just looking at Brown Foreman, for example, it's down a lot from its peak, but it's still trading at like 34 times, I want to say 2023 estimates. And before that, it was kind of range bound between say like 17 times and 26 times. So it, they still seem a little bit elevated to me, despite the carnage. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, definitely depends on the company. Um, for Brand Foreman in particular, I should have mentioned this, there's two share classes, the A's and B's. And the A's are 8% cheaper than the B's right now. So valuation's significantly more reasonable for the A shares. Also, that company has been under-earning due to tariffs in Europe. And also, uh, one, there's tariffs, and two, they lost a lot of sales uh, from bars on-premise consumption being closed. So I think their earnings in 2024 will be substantially higher than where they are now. But you, you are still correct. That, yeah, it's, it's definitely not outright cheap. Uh, come down a lot but yeah um to your broader point you're right that the the compounders kind of as an investment style became very popular in the latter half of the 2010s uh you had people like fundsmith uh, and some hedge funds that were kind of saying just buy quality and and sit tight and so the multiples on a lot of these stocks you had stuff like idex which is a, a lab I think it's uh, laboratory equipment or lab testing, something to do with life sciences. They got up to like an ADP. It's, uh, it's yeah. not a tech company. It was. It used to be like a 30 or 40 P and they just kept bidding it up and up and up. And now it's dropped by half and it's still selling at 40 times earnings. It's like, what were you guys doing paying 80 times earnings for this company? I mean, I like, I like lab 
equipment a lot. It's a great sector, but if you buy anything at 80 times earnings, you're facing a stiff uh, stiff headwind from when the multiple re-rates. Yeah, I still, I mean, I agree. I still see quite a bit of sentiment like on Twitter that basically says like, oh, you need to, all you need to do is buy the best companies in the world and sit on your ass. And that's like a sound strategy without sort of reference to valuation. And, and I feel like, I feel like there's still a bit of that sentiment that needs to get sort of banged out of people's heads, maybe a little bit with that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. Uh, yeah. Like I've said, I think that this is a bear market that will last for at least a period of months, uh, if not at least a year. Um, so it's not like, uh, I think people were so trained by 2000, the December 2018 drop and then COVID that if you buy and wait three months, everything will be back to new all-time highs. And so I think you're going to see a period where stocks, maybe they don't drop that much further, but they don't go up anyway. And so maybe we're still at S&P 4,000 in 12 months and people that got too aggressive in terms of buying the first dip uh, might learn some lessons in terms of uh how to scale into positions and being a little more patient. Yeah, totally. Anyway, all right, cool. Uh, love your uh, yeah. love your stuff, Ian. Thanks. That's really kind. All right, who wants to be up next? Have to. Good to hear from you. Um, hi. Uh, hi, Ian. My question is: uh, Just now, you said you expect the recession to be fairly short, and that the Fed will back down pretty soon. Once they they've seen maybe some uh, a crash of the stock market, but what if uh, this doesn't happen? Uh, what what what's your playbook for the other scenario, which is the Fed will um, will need to bring down the inflation um, aggressively? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. If they're not able to control inflation, I'd say. But, and I'm pretty uh, sure it's hard for them to control inflation because all the QE, they didn't go into the real economy. They went into the asset bubbles. So by squeezing, just by inflating, uh, just by raising the rate is not going to um, improve the supply side issue. So um, I, I just don't think uh, what they have been doing um, is going to help the inflation issue much if they back down in the middle. So maybe they, they could be in a flip-flop um, situation for a while. But I just want to see what's your playbook for the other more dreadful scenario. Yeah, that's definitely a possibility. Uh, I would say that the Fed can uh, control inflation to some extent in terms of when asset prices come down. Uh, it does tend to hit people's consumption. There's a wealth effect, like when stocks are going up. Uh, people feel like they have more money and so they spend more uh, and then having interest rates go up as much as they have like mortgages approaching six percent that will dramatically slow the housing market and housing is i believe housing construction is kind of the single biggest uh variable in terms of of moving the economy's strength there's so much jobs uh, so many other jobs tied to construction and so i think the fed has some control obviously not full control uh things like the supply chains or they can't do anything about um but yeah i think i think mortgage rates in particular are going to significantly slow down housing in the u.s and also in other countries like in canada it seems the housing market is finally rolling over there after many years of people predicting it uh and so that uh, there's global effects as well when uh, yeah i think you'll see asset prices in places like canada come down as well 
Um, but yeah, what would be my plan? I, I think we'll start seeing signs of, of inflation starting to come in, at least from the peak by the end of the summer. Um, and I'll have to reconsider if, if inflation is still going higher, uh, let's call it in August, then I will have been wrong. I'll have been very wrong in my bond position and I'll have to totally reassess. Uh, yeah, because my current framework is that there's still a few things like semiconductors that are going to be problematic uh, and oil uh, that will be problematic for the longer term in terms of inflation. Uh, but a lot of the, my understanding is a lot of supplies and a lot of uh, base metals and uh, some manufactured goods uh, supplies have improved fairly significantly. Um, and so I think uh, obviously there's still very difficult choke points in terms of supply chains, like semiconductors are being a huge problem. Uh, but I think the overall supply chain, the things like wood, uh, <laughs> lumber, uh, that just went crazy last year, they, you're starting to see a little more rational of a the market there. Um, so actually, um, I would like, to, uh, maybe I can tell you what I am doing, uh, because I'm uh -huh. preparing Absolutely. for the latter, the more uh, horrible, terrible situation. So what I have been doing is building up um, preferred shares type of stuff or write short puts. Uh, I, I have been accumulating or studying your watch list, but I uh -huh. don't yep. make, I don't go in them directly unless, unless it's like like no brainer bargains like those bank stocks that you're featuring. Um, and does that make sense if I were preparing for the horrible situation? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think there's a reasonable argument to be made that, uh, that stocks likely won't be much higher over the next six or 12 months than they are now, at least until we have a clear sense of when the, the Fed is going to let up and kind of what the recession uh, is looking like. So yeah, I think there's a case for, like you said, I think you said preferreds so or kind of uh, holding some cash or holding some, some short-term income options and... Uh, yeah, and then we'll see if the market really drops. Like if the S&P gets to 3,500, 3,300, then you'll be happy to have taken a more conservative stance. Yeah, yeah. I would like to just um, to play the devil's advocate and just to uh, advance my argument for why I'm more leaning towards the, the horrible situation uh, because um, we are seeing a, a huge problem in the supply side and the geopolitically, whatever Washington is doing is not helping on that inflation reigning in because they are, the, uh, the Ukraine war is going to uh, distract a lot of the European manufacturing capacities. I read somewhere that the European, some Finnish paper company said they are, they are going to maybe stop producing paper or like put a lot of the capacity uh, on idle because paper making is a very energy intense um, undertaking. So they're preparing for the winter or for the next winter. So they're going to like lace people in Europe, in Europe are making a decision to, to, to prepare for the, the horrible situation of their energy reality in the upcoming uh, autumn or winter. And so this is one aspect of it. And then the current tension between China and the U.S. is going to create a lot of um, like unnecessary or like inefficiency in how goods are produced and shipped and consumed here. And on the other hand, the wage inflation here makes, makes it 
so uneconomic for the U.S. to rely on its own manufacturing capacity to produce the things it needs. So I, I just don't see any reason macro, macroly to 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 help uh, U.S. inflation to come down um, the way things are going right now. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, you're definitely right in terms of Europe. They're paying uh, exceptionally high prices for natural gas. Um, and then who knows when supply will be available from Russia or not available. It's a big question mark. And uh, Germany in particular put itself in a very difficult situation, shutting down all of its nuclear capacity before uh, having a real alternative ready. So you're right, you're, uh, Europe in particular faces some, some real structural issues uh, going forward. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Always a pleasure uh, when you call in. Yeah, thanks. All right. Would anyone else like to come up? Don't be shy. All right, not seeing anyone else that wants to come up. Um, yeah, so I guess I'll just talk about one more stock that I find interesting at the moment, which would be Nike, which has dropped from 180 to 110. Uh, this is kind of in the compounder camp that uh, our first caller was talking about, where the price had been going to... Uh, to more and uh, more and more unreasonable valuations, and now has uh, suddenly come back to a more more realistic one. Uh, over the past few years, Nike has invested heavily in its direct-to-consumer channel. They were kind of the leader in the apparel category in terms of figuring out how to do that first. And they've kind of uh, taken. They used to be heavily reliant on resellers like Foot Locker to distribute their products, but nowadays uh, Nike has done a tremendous job of marketing directly to consumers through Instagram and. Uh, other other such means uh, so they don't have to pay essentially a tax to a retailer. They get to sell direct, which is dramatically lifted profit margins. Uh, and analysts were kind of extrapolating that their earnings would keep growing at a accelerated pace indefinitely uh, because things were going so well with their business model transition. Um, and then with COVID, you had kind of even more acceleration in terms of malls and outlets and all being closed down. So everyone was ordering online, which was, uh, once again, very good news for Nike. Uh, so it's been kind of from victory to victory for Nike. And let's see, shares were 100 uh, prior to the pandemic, and they ran up to 180 uh, by last year. So 80% uh, gain uh, in the span of, what is that, 18 months, which was probably excessive. Uh, yeah, and then now, like I said, shares are down by a third so far this year. Um, trading under 30 times forward earnings, which, uh, like our first caller said, you could say is still uh, quite expensive, and I wouldn't necessarily disagree with you. Um, however, uh, they've been going earnings uh, well under the teens. Uh, and I don't know. It'll probably slow down because they've gotten the easiest uh, low-hanging fruit in terms of their transition to direct-to-consumer uh, rather than selling through stores. 
however, NOSC, NOSC a pretty flat 2022, obviously against 2021, which was a tremendous year for the company. Uh, so difficult for them to grow much this year. But 2023, NOSC earnings jumping 24% and then another 19% in 2024. If they hit those numbers, the company would earn 555 this year in 2024, which would put the PE at 19, uh, which... Uh, I think that would be quite interesting. Obviously, a world-class company and brand, an excellent, uh, excellent management team. They, they've just been operationally been firing on all cylinders, and I think if you see those growth rates, uh, then Nike is going to be a lot higher than one hundred ten dollars in a couple of years. Uh, obviously, you have your general market risk. Uh, you've got consumer slowdown risk. Like if we go into recession, uh, Nike sales would be hurt to some degree. You've got big China exposure, and who knows what's going on with China and their uh, latest COVID lockdowns. So you could have an ugly quarter or two from them, depending on how what happens with their Asian markets. Uh, uh, also supply chain issues. Uh, who knows if they'll be able to, to get everything to everyone on time this holiday season or not. It's kind of a question mark. Um, so I, I think bears can make a lot of, of salient articles uh, arguments on why Nike might have a difficult 2022, and they wouldn't be wrong. However, uh, I, I just see a great company here that has, uh, for a while, been too expensive to consider buying. However, when it drops by a third this quickly, it suddenly uh, gets a lot more interesting in my view. And so I think this is the sort of company that's getting thrown out with the, the market. Like, has anything happened this year that would really justify a 35% drop, or is they're just kind of all these funds that owned it because it was going up or now having to sell because they're getting redemptions or they, they don't want to own it now that the chart's going down. It's just been a tremendous decline just over the past month. Uh, April 21st, it was trading at 138, and today it closed at 109. So, uh, it's, I get it if it were like a software or a tech company. That's That sort of move has been quite common in the tech space, but... And we're talking about shoes here, and that's down 28 points in a few weeks. Uh, so, yeah, that's the sort of names that I find are interesting. Uh, if you want to go looking for names yourself, uh, one interesting thing, one way I like to do it, I like to go on Finviz, which is kind of a financial screener. I have no affiliation with them, and it's free. So uh, just I use it because it's helpful. Uh, they have a screener there that you can select. I like to select it to new 52-week lows, and then I sort by market cap to see kind of the biggest companies on down to the smaller one. And you can put other settings there, like uh, what PE ratio you want or what dividend yield you want. Uh, it gives you kind of a quick screen of uh, what's making new lows at the moment. And I wouldn't buy something just because it's making new lows, but it's kind of an interesting way to see where potentially new bargains, new opportunities uh, shaping up and so i've been watching that list very closely over the past week and uh primarily through this year has all been technology companies but then over the past week or two these companies like nike and starbucks and disney and kind of uh some more consumer discretionary stuff has started showing up and i think there's going to be some some good hunting grounds particularly if the market keeps going like this for another week or two uh because we're starting to see some some crazy price action in individual companies so that's kind of how I'm looking for opportunities in the market now. And uh, hopefully this has been helpful. And I'll open the line up again if anyone wants to ask a question.
right. Uh, yeah. Oh, all right. We have Greg. You're up, Greg. Can you hear me now? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I'm doing two things at once, so if I'm asking a redundant question, I apologize. Uh, you mentioned semiconductors. I remember um, you went on the Chatter TV years ago with Intel, so you seem to that used to be your favorite. That's pretty down a lot. Is, is this something interesting? Maybe selling puts? Oh, wow, you have a good memory. Yeah, I think that was 2017, so <laughs> thank you for mentioning that, uh, loyal uh, viewer. Uh, yeah, so I pitched Intel, I think it was at $40 then, and it went up to like 70 but has ultimately uh, round-tripped. Now it's back to 44 Um Let's see, trading at 12 times forward earnings, which is roughly normal for it. It, it never really trades at a very high PE because people think uh, that the business is slowly going to go away uh, and that the, the main cash cow is still selling chips for databases, uh, for server computers and for personal computers. And um, prior to kind of COVID gave new life, like I think uh, laptop sales had a new high in 2020. But prior to that, uh, personal computing was viewed as a slowly shrinking market as more people preferred tablets or phones. Uh, rather than than upgrading their laptops all the time, uh, so Intel chronically a low PE stock. Uh, people have been skeptical of the management team. They've kind of fallen behind AMD uh, on the technological frontier. Um, but yeah, I think it's still interesting. Is it's the valuation is low enough that you're not going to get killed uh, if management can't right the ship immediately in terms of getting the technology back up to par with their competition. Like the worst case outcome is something like a IBM or Cisco where the stock just trades sideways for many years and you get your dividend. Uh, but I think there's yeah substantial possibility that things could improve there. Uh, they spend $15 billion a year in R&D, which is like four times NVIDIA's budget and I think eight times AMD's research budget. So I think if over, over a long enough time period, if you spend that much on R&D, you should get something for it. Uh, there's also the other businesses. I believe they're spinning off Mobileye, their self-driving unit this year. Uh, who knows what the valuation would be now? I'd been hearing that it would be like $50 billion, and I think they paid $17 billion, So that would look like a big win for them. But I don't know. I don't know if that deal can happen now with how the market is. So, uh, we'll wait and see on that. But yeah, they're, they're doing some, some interesting stuff uh, aside from the cash cow business. So yeah, I think it's a safe lower risk way to play tech 3.3 percent dividend which is uh one of the higher ones you'll see out of the tech space so, yeah I'd, I'd be fine with buying intel here and it doesn't really trade like the other tech stocks really it's more kind of in the value stock bucket rather than the growth stock bucket so uh it won't be as correlated to like your amazons and nvidia's and whatnot okay um got time for another quick question yeah yeah one more yeah, it looks like I'm a really bad fisherman. I started selling puts on Unity at 80 and 70 and 60 and 50. I guess I might as well hold on at this point. Uh, yeah, the, yeah uh, all of these SaaS companies, if they beat earnings, they go up like 2%. And if they miss earnings, they go down 20 or 30%. So, uh, yeah, still essential piece of software. I think it will ultimately get acquired uh, if the price stays down here. Uh, but yeah, 
I, I wouldn't be surprised if someone actually buys it uh, now in 2022 if the stock stays at 35 bucks. Uh, what the market cap's under 15 billion here, so it'd be an easy purchase for for a larger company. Uh, like I've said, there's really only two companies that are present here on Real, and them. Uh, they're 70% market share for mobile games, and they will have some lay market share in virtual reality once that's up and running. And so, yeah, and, and the company will still be around and growing in five and ten years. It's a very valuable asset, but in the short term, people can do uh, whatever with the valuation. It's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really surprised it's a 35, but I guess when we look at how much everything else has come down your Shopify's and Netflix's and all that stuff's down seventy five percent as well. So I guess they had to come for my Unity too. But yeah, that's the that's the risk with selling puts. If it goes through the strike price and keeps going. All right, thanks. Yep. All right, anyone else? Last chance for calls tonight. All right, have to. Welcome back. Okay, yes. I want to ask you two more uh, company-specific questions. So uh-huh. um, I see that um, the the Argentine agriculture company, Crisud, um, has come down. Its price has come down. A while ago, I, I kind of I kicked myself for not buying it when it was around this level. It has come back to slightly somewhat above six. And I, um, I, I really like to have some agriculture exposure. So, do you think this is a good enough, um, like price price level? Do you uh-huh. have any view? Yeah. So, for people that aren't familiar, uh, we're talking about Cresud, uh, ticker C R E S Y. I don't know why it's a five ticker, a five, uh, whatever. But it's on the Nasdaq, so it's easily purchasable in the U.S. Uh, it owns a ton of land uh, and some other uh, uh, buildings and stuff, uh, primarily in Argentina. Uh, the stock has done very little long term. Uh, back in the 1990s, it was trading around 15. It periodically goes up to like 20 and then down to 5. It kind of cycles to that range. Uh, over the past year, it was kind of around 6 for most of 2021. It ran up to 10 in April kind of as Ukraine was going and people were worried about uh, food shortages. Uh, it caused a huge run in, in Kursud, and now the shares are back to six, so basically flat over the past year. Uh, the issue with it as a long-term investment is that Argentina, the socialists have a, their power base in Buenos Aires, and they always punish the, the rural industries, primarily agriculture and mining, whenever the socialists are in power. And so... Uh, would you mind meeting your uh, oh, okay, uh, yeah. yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, and so the issue long term is that whenever socialists come back to power, they they tend to to do things such as putting a artificial exchange rate or stuff like that that hurts the farmers. So that's why Crestwood has not generated much value long term. That said, big asterisk. I like the stock in terms of the next two or three years. I think the conservatives will win the 2023 presidential election in Argentina uh, next November or December, I believe. Uh, and so I think you'll see people bid up Argentine stocks in general at the election because the conservatives haven't been in power for a while. So I think 
it'll be some optimism around that. And then you just throw in higher agriculture prices, higher uh, mining prices, higher beef prices. Like all of Argentina's exports are going up, so they will be flush with dollars. Um, heading into an election where I think the conservatives will have a good chance of winning the the current uh, left uh, left of center uh, government handled COVID very poorly there. I think they had the worst COVID response in Latin America, or maybe second worst after Brazil. But anyway, they stayed locked down longer than most countries, but had more deaths as well. And so it was just kind of, uh, people viewed it as very bungled. And so, I mean, in terms of even beyond the normal economic reasons that people might vote for the, the right wing, there is a lot of frustration there with how the government handled that crisis. So I think uh, politically, Argentina looks good for 2023 and kind of land is going to be one of the most volatile in terms of it responds more to to government policy um, than a lot of other sectors. So I wouldn't be surprised if the stock runs to 10 or maybe even 15 uh, kind of as a momentum play uh, between like inflation and high crop prices and uh, enthusiasm around Argentina. I don't own any personally. My my play in Argentina is the airports, the CAAP, uh, which I like better as a long term investment because that that one the government can't really uh, they can't really mess mess with you in the same way they can with agriculture. Kind of the revenues come in dollars, and the government uh, has given them a contract through two thousand thirty eight. So I think you more secure uh, on a long-term basis in the airports, uh, but for near-term upside, I think the, the land play could definitely work. Okay, yeah, thank you. That's very helpful. And then the other company I want to, I want to ask you about is uh, a paper-making company in Brazil called Suzano. It's ticker S-U-Z uh, and A-D-R. And that's why, uh, the reason why I asked about it is, like, I read something about the Finnish paper thing about how uh, Russia is like an has a twenty percent share on a global kind of pulp export or some ingredient that is essential for paper making um, because they, it's very energy intense. So once Russia is kind of becomes not viable, everyone else uh, maybe they are constrained by energy. Uh, da, 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 da. So people expect those wood pulp or paper paper price is going to people expect paper price to rise substantially. So <laughs> that's why I'm looking at this, but I don't know much about it. Yeah, so I I had never heard of this company until you mentioned it. So I'm just looking at it now. Uh, Susano is the name for people that didn't hear. Take your SUZ on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, 14 billion market cap, so fairly large company. That'd be one of the larger ones out of Brazil. Um, uh, it's trading at, if this is right, which it looks like it's right, it's trading at three and a half times this year's estimated earnings, which is pretty incredible. Uh, however, it appears to be earning way more this year than it usually does. Uh, so I think. That's kind of the question with all these commodity plays is how much do we pay for these incredible 2021 earnings? Um, yeah, like Susanna, they, their last five years of earnings, they are in 51 cents, 8 cents, lost money in 2019, lost money in 2020, uh, made a dollar last year, and now they're saying it's going to earn like $3 this year. Uh, but what will people pay for $3 of earnings this year when 
historically it tends to earn like 50 cents uh, kind of on average and so if people value it at its long-term average which would be 50 cents of earnings then it would be trading at 20 times that here at 10 bucks uh, but if people say oh it's gonna earn three dollars this year maybe they pay a big dividend maybe they buy back stock i don't know maybe the stock goes to 15 or 20 because people are so excited about the near-term earnings but i find it very difficult to try to value these sorts of highly cyclical companies because it's just yeah, how much is one year of tremendous earnings worth if then earnings go back to normal after that? Uh, but I don't really know this industry. I've not invested in paper companies, so I don't really know how to analyze it, unfortunately. That's just kind of my high-level thoughts. Uh, but, but do you think the how does the Brazil macro risk would ap- apply to this uh, paper-making industry in, in, in Brazil? Do you have any view? Because I know you don't like those, like oil companies in Brazil. They can be, their prices can, the oil price can be maybe controlled by the country. So they can't maybe maximize their profit potential, that sort of thing. Do you have a similar concern for paper products or this in this industry? Uh, I think paper would be safer than uh, oil. Like the issue with buying Petrobras, PBR, their big oil company, is that uh, when Petrobras right now has market pricing, meaning that as oil prices have gone up, they've been able to raise gas prices at the pump the same amount. Uh, but both both main parties in Brazil are saying that Petrobras is now earning too much money, and so they want to limit how much uh, more they can charge for gas. Uh, but paper isn't like... Uh, nearly as important to the economy like people don't have to buy more paper every day to get to work like they have to drive so i don't think like if the price of paper goes up significantly i don't think the government would intervene to to change that um once again i said i don't know this business but i assume most of their sales are outside of brazil as well just because it's such a large company i can't imagine that that they would do be a 14 billion market cap company that only sells products in brazil so i'd assume that they're able to export and that would insulate them from from a lot of uh, brazil specific issues as well yeah uh, yeah the reason why i'm interested in this kind of my latest interest is uh last few days the hong kong market is really in a blood bath but what uh-huh. <laughs> but all the paper making uh tickers they were rising against this like huge uh like uh, uphill or the headwind so that's why i'm I'm thinking there is something in the paper industry going on. Anyway. Yeah, for people that are looking at the chart, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, like Hefte said, that if the paper stocks are going up overseas, and yet this one, uh, Susanna was at 11.50 in April, and now it's in, it closed at 9.56 today. So there could be a relative value trade there. Uh, but yeah, I just I don't know this company well enough to... to make an official recommendation on it. But it's interesting. Uh, it well, depends on what they do with their $3 of earnings this year. If they do a big buyback or dividend or something, that could be very interesting for, for shareholders. Yeah. I, I actually read the last two. There were a few articles in Seeking Alpha on this. I read the last two of them. One of them made the point that this paper company um, is fairly insulated from cost inflation because they have a vertical integration model so they own a lot of their own forest i felt that one to be interesting that point anyway i don't know much about it no yeah that definitely helps 
that's something that's been helping a lot of Latin American companies is they tend to, um, we tend to import less of the base goods for stuff than like, uh, like a Kimberly Clark uh, that makes paper, uh, paper products in the U.S. Like they import so much stuff and so they're very sensitive to rising costs, but a, a country like a Colombia or Peru or Brazil tends to be less integrated globally in terms of trade than some other countries. And so uh, I think, I think we're seeing less inflation in Latin America than you might have expected just from how much inflation's gone up in the U.S. because our supply chains are shorter than than the U.S. ones. So, like, Latin American companies aren't generally importing so much stuff from from China or from Vietnam or uh, these countries where everything has gotten backed up. So that's given us the competitive advantage that uh, most people probably don't appreciate. Um, I'm good. Thank you. All right. So coming up on an hour here. So I think we'll call it a night. Thanks, uh, everyone, for joining. Uh, I see a lot of people listening tonight. One of the biggest uh, episodes we've done so far. So I want to thank you all for your loyal listenership. And uh, hopefully we'll have a show next week. Uh, I'll try to be a a little more uh, prompt in terms of sticking on a weekly schedule. So, yeah, thanks uh, for joining and have a good evening, great week. And uh, hopefully markets will pick up a little bit and your trades will go profitably. All right. Have a great one. Bye-bye.